On the show today, we are going to be discussing an article from the Gospel Coalition, Nine Things You Should Know About the Prosperity Gospel. And then we'll discuss the passing of Sarah Young. And then we'll move on to our Bible topic, which is chapter 12 of Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin. All right, let's get to it. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hello. And we're very grateful that you're joining us today. If you're new here, uh, we are not religionless. Uh, we are quite Christian, quite religious folks. So religious, we go to church on Wednesdays. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, we're just grateful that you're here, but we want to get that out up front. And we're going to try to do today what we do every Saturday, and that's look at you know stories from the news around the country, whatever piques our interest, and try to figure it out, make sense of it from a Christian worldview. And that's what we're going to do today as well. So um, before we get into all the news stories that we have, is there anything you'd like to say? Prayer requests, praise reports, anything of that sort? Um, Yeah, I guess prayer requests. We're kind of looking into different homeschool curriculum. I'm not sure if it's true because I haven't had an email back from them. It's been a few days. Um, I heard some things that kind of point to them going woke. <laughs> um, and it's a Christian curriculum. Um, so kind of disappointing. It's not like too big of a deal for the kids to continue using it. But this the point is that like, I don't want to support a company that's doing that, especially if they have, if they're supposed to be Christian. So yeah, let, let us know if, I don't know, just know of any out there that aren't sneaking things into their, into their curriculum. Uh, it's kind of hard to know. You wouldn't know until really someone pointed it out if you hadn't used that um, particular book and that grade yet. So, um, yeah, just prayers that we would pick a good one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's uh, definitely a difficult thing to navigate, but uh, do pray for that. Pray for us there. I don't have a prayer request, but I do have a praise report, and that is that my Detroit Lions are one and zero. After beating supposedly the champs, Kansas City Chiefs, in the opening game of the NFL season, that's a good day. <laughs> Might have been the biggest win in my adult lifetime for the Detroit Lions. So that's why I'm rocking the Lions sweater. It's a good day. So, anyways, <laughs> better be you, in Lord. a good mood. We'll see. I still have to go uh, to work, so we'll figure that out. But, anyways. Let's get our plugs out of the way here, and then we'll get rolling on our discussion on the prosperity gospel. You guys know that we're big fans of Cardinal Contingency Solutions. Um, I love to plug their travel risk management because the world is a crazy place. And, you know, kind of going in blindly unprepared can get yourself kind of hemmed up. You know, there's a lot of nefarious actors around the world, a lot of people that uh, hate Christians, a lot of people that dislike Americans, and a lot of people that are just in need of money and, and that sort of stuff. So, you know, if you're not prepared, if you're unsure, or unaware of, you know, what the environment you're going into is, you can, you know, can get yourself in a tough spot. So whether you're traveling as an individual family, or, you know, you're a mission organization, reach out to Cardinal, and they can get you prepared. 
let you know, you know, what's going on in those environments, what assets you have available to you and how you can protect yourself or your team um, in any given environment around the world. So they'll be in the show notes. And then also you guys know that we are proud members of the Christian podcast community, which is a great place for you to go and find 50 to 60, you know, good Christian podcasts, more indie podcasts, if you will, from a whole range of topics, even homeschooling. So, uh, you know, maybe you're thinking about homeschooling your kids. They got podcasts on there that can help get you equipped for that. I should probably just go and look through all those. I'm sure that would be yeah, we should probably answer just reach to out our to prayer the, request. <laughs> reach out to the homeschool revolution and uh, I'm sure they'll, uh, they'll get us pointed in the right direction. Our schoolhouse rocked podcast. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, go check them out anywhere you listen to podcasts, and I'm sure you'll be blessed by it. And then um, the selfish plug here if you guys want to help the show out in any way, the easiest way to do that is to just drop a like, um, subscribe, whatever platform you're on. If you're on the podcast and it gives you the opportunity to follow or subscribe, please consider doing that and maybe take a second to leave a review if it gives you that option. Those things would certainly help us a lot. And then if you want to help us financially, which certainly helps, um, we have affiliate links down in the show notes. You can go to Amazon, Best Buy, you know, and purchase anything there and we get a small percentage at no extra cost to you. And then we also have links to buy me a coffee and our newly sort of established Patreon. Um, if you want to support us that way, again, the Patreon doesn't offer you really anything in addition to what we have on the show here, other than we have sort of a community prayer list that we're trying to get started. So you'll have access to that and just join with us in prayer for things that we're concerned with and hopefully things that you're concerned with, because we want to be praying with you as well. So all of that's down in the show notes so go check it out um all right cue the music because we're talking about false teaching what else is more horror music worthy than false teaching so we'll just get into this here do you want to go ahead and read the headline honey nine things you should know about the prosperity gospel yep so this article was just recently published by the uh, the Gospel Coalition. And I think the reason why this is important to discuss is kind of highlighted right here in one of their opening sentences in the first paragraph. Um, it says, a recent survey finds an increasing number of churchgoers in the United States subscribe to beliefs associated with the prosperity gospel. Um, mm -hmm. It says, in the last five years, far more churchgoers are reflecting prosperity gospel teachings. And then uh, I just went and they linked to a survey here. And um, it's a survey done by Lifeway. And it says here, 52% say their church teaches that God will bless them if they give more money to their church and charities. It goes on, it says, those who say their churches teach that God will bless them if they give more increased from 38% up to 52%. So it's increasing in this nation. And 76% believe that God wants them to prosper financially. So, And like, what does that mean to each person, their own definition of prospering in finances? Because some people are just content and they feel they're prospering. Like for us, not being in debt, but not living lavishly. Like, I think we're prospering. 
but we're not like right praying I mean, for expensive cars and, and you know this, a lot uh, of material things like we're content <laughs> and i don't know if this survey digs into that deeper but yeah i doubt they do right because it's an individual matter you know what people consider prospering financially but regardless i mean i think that that's but the fact that it's gone up because they say i'll give because god will bless me that's the problem right that is a problem and i think this is some dangerous teaching and again that's why we want to address it and more so because it's on the rise um so we need to understand what the prosperity gospel is and we need to understand how to speak against it i think mm -hmm. Um, is important. So we're going to also have this survey linked as we do with all the stories that we discuss here. If you want to go check them out for yourself, they'll all be linked down in the description or the show notes, whatever it you know, happens to be called there. And you can go give it a more thorough scrubbing on your own time if you want. And we do recommend that you read through this stuff on your own and um, go check these surveys out on your own. Don't take my word for it. Um, but, you know, I think for today, I think it's just good enough to know that this trend is on the rise and we think it's a dangerous trend. So mm -hmm. we're just going to go through these nine points, uh, see what they are, what they have to say, and then we'll give our thoughts on them as we, as we go along. So do you want to read here point number one? The prosperity gospel goes by many names and brands. The prosperity gospel is an umbrella term for the health and wealth gospel, or name it and claim it theology. Many people will recognize its most popular brand, the word of faith movement. This doctrine teaches that God wills the financial prosperity and physical well-being of his people in that faith. Um, positive speech and donations to select Christian ministries can increase one's material wealth and health. So that's a workspace. <laughs> yep, definitely workspace. And um, it just, I had a thought as I was reading through that, um, just as a side note, I guess, is I wonder what percentage of people with sort of differing end times views ascribe to a prosperity gospel teaching. You know, it made me think that maybe more post-millennials um, believe in that because post-millennial, um, just the quick, simple definition that I looked up was you know, Christ's second coming uh, occurs after the millennium, right? But a golden age or era of Christian prosperity and domin uh, dominance will take place. So it's something I thought, I wonder if more post-millennials who think of this golden age of Christian prosperity and dominance also would ascribe to uh, a prosperity gospel mindset. Just curious, let me know in the comments if you guys would agree with that, mm -hmm. or if I'm just pulling that out of thin air. But Back to point one, um, this is basically what we would understand as a prosperity gospel, kind of that umbrella term, you know, word of faith, health, wealth, um, all that sort of stuff, name it and claim it. I think, yeah, we would have agreed with that. Yeah, it's like you think you have power to create with your words. You're like God in his power, but yeah, that's a false teaching, and it's also along the lines of the, I don't think it brings it up in here, but the little gods uh, doctrine. That we are yeah, made I mean, in his image, all... so we are a god as well. We're just a mini god. Yeah, run from that teaching too. Yeah, I think it's all part of it. I mean, I think many of the same people that ascribe to the prosperity gospel, or at least the ones who would teach that little god theology, would also ascribe to 
the prosperity gospel sort of umbrella as well. So yeah, because there um, just is a scripture that's like taken out of context for that. Yeah, I actually had we a, are gods, and it's really like people were like gods, like kings were like gods, and that's what's referencing. Yeah, I think it's like Psalm eighty-two. I actually had a nice discussion with a Mormon about that um, because that oh, was one of the yeah. uh, points that he referenced. But my big problem with this philosophy, this prosperity gospel, aside from the fact that we believe that it's a false teaching, is I think it flies in the face of reality. You know, and I think mm-hmm. if you're like us, you know. Most of the most, most of the most faithful people um, that you know in your life are, in fact, the least financially and materially successful, right? They might also be some of the sickly people, right? Mm-hmm. So, what are you going to conclude from that? Either you know their faith is false, or this doctrine is false, uh, false, right? Because they both can't be true. If the mm-hmm. most faithful people are supposed to be the most materially prosperous. Yet reality shows us that m- many of the most faithful people we know aren't quite as successful financially, or they might be sickly. Then we have to conclude that one of these ideas has to be false. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also what this doctrine does is for those who ascribe to it, um, and they aren't materially successful, then it almost convinces them that their faith is weak, even though their faith may be immensely strong. But because they aren't prospering in the ways that they have come to believe they should, mm-hmm. then it causes them to question their own faith. Yeah, it causes them dangerous to and doubt sad. their salvation. Yeah. Like if I don't have enough faith for something smaller than my own salvation, then how am I? How do I have enough faith to be saved? Yeah, or you hear these people that you know are on TV or whatever, and they're telling you, you know, God wants to do all this. And you just assume, well, they must be more faithful. Their faith must be stronger. They don't have the same doubts I do. So maybe my faith is weak because if it wasn't, then I would be just like them. And that's a shame because you're essentially questioning your own faith faith based on a false teaching, which you shouldn't. So yeah, yeah we, uh, we're down with point number one. Yeah, umbrella term. So let's move on to point number two here. Oh, point number two, the prosperity gospel has its roots in the occult movement known as New Thought. The New Thought movement is a spiritual philosophy that originated in the United States in the late 19th century. While not explicitly Christian, it was influenced by Christian ideas, as well as by Eastern philosophies, metaphysical traditions, and the emerging fields of psychology and self-help. The movement focuses on the power of positive thinking, the belief that positive thoughts manifest positive outcomes, while negative thoughts bring about negative circumstances. New thought incorporates elements of Christian mysticism and scripture, but interprets them in a metaphysical context. Phrases from the Bible like, ask and it will be given to you, Matthew 7, 7, are often interpreted as affirmations of the law of attraction. Yeah, this, uh, you know, as I was putting together our notes on Sarah Young, I was like, ah, yeah, there's the new age mysticism kind of thing right there with Sarah Young. But uh, Mm -hmm. I did not necessarily know this or make the connection um, with my thoughts on the prosperity gospel, probably because I didn't think much about it. I mean, I don't spend a lot of my time dissecting false teachings all the time. Um, 
but it makes sense, you know, because we do know that the new age sort of mystic ideas are infecting the church. Mm -hmm. You know, we've just recently talked about Bill Johnson and Bethel Church, which is like gone off the deep, deep end into, you know, new age mysticism. So this makes sense, right? Name it and claim it. It's kind of being uh, an aspect of the word of faith teaching. You know, they, what was mm -hmm. that famous book that came out years ago, The Secret, which was all about the law of attraction and that sort of stuff, you know? So yeah, this makes sense um, that they would have these mystic practices. And again, you know, we're not going to deep dive into Sarah Young and all of her stuff, but um, in some of the critiques that I read about her, it was the same stuff, right? Um, this, you know, law of attraction kind of idea wrapped into her devotionals and writings and that sort of stuff. So it is infecting um, the church. But, you know, here again with this, I think it's unbiblical, right? This law of attraction, name it and claim it kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible teaches us in uh, was it 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, let me get it pulled up here. Um, do you want to read First John chapter five, verse fourteen? Um, this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Yeah, yeah. Key phrase there, according to His will. According to His will. Um, and in regards to Matthew chapter seven, verse seven, um, this is like the classic maybe one of the most commonly sort of taken out of context verses, you know, the whole ask and you shall receive because, right. We're always told read the Bible in context, right? You don't just want to grab one verse and go, well, that's what this means. I read one standalone verse and this is what it is. Right. Yeah. That context wasn't even talking about material wealth, anything like your needs. It was more like about, praying for people or, you know, people's souls well, it was about the, the gospel. <laughs> right. Because the bigger context, right? Reading in context, Matthew 7, 7 is part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And this is the same sermon, right? Where he starts off by telling us that we're blessed <clears throat> when we mourn. Mm. We're blessed when we're poor in spirit. We're blessed when we're persecuted. So it would be odd for Jesus to say all these things. You're blessed when you mourn, persecuted, and then turn around and say, if you just ask me, though, I'll give you the world and make sure you're happy all the time and healthy. So you're blessed right? both it, in both circumstances. Right. There, it would be at odds with each other in yeah. a sense. So, you know, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, you know, Jesus saying, ask, you know, talking about asking and receiving. He says, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Let me pull that up. Uh, let me get it up here. Uh, let me make sure I'm in the new American standard version. None of that old King James nonsense. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, I do have a verse in here from the uh, new King James. But Matthew 7 verse 11 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And you know? what is good? Yeah. Right. That's the question you have to ask then, right? Does God think material wealth and prosperity is good for you? But he also says God does not give as the world gives. Right. So again, this is why you don't just pull a standalone verse out of the Bible and go, this is what it means, right? Because again, it would seem weird 
if that's necessarily what they were talking about, because in this same sermon, right, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, let's go back to Matthew 6, uh, verse 19 through 21. Do you want to read verse 19 through 21? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yeah. Yeah. Is so, your heart on the world or on heavenly things? Yeah. So again, you know, what does God think is good? You know, mm-hmm. where does he want your treasure to be stored, right? And Jesus tells you <laughs> pretty in the exact same sermon. So, you know, I think this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, right, far from being a foundational scripture, of the prosperity gospel is actually one of its greatest critiques mm-hmm. um, because the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, the entire sermon is Jesus teaching us that the kingdom of God doesn't operate the same way as the kingdom of man and that those in God's kingdom don't look the same as those in man's kingdom, right? So how can you take the message and those principles and then turn around and say, but Jesus wants to bless us the same way as the worldly? It's just, it's completely wrong. It's taken, again, out of context, right? Because that's not what the sermon is preaching. So is it new age, the prosperity gospel? We would say, yeah, sure it is. Um, But is it twisting scripture? We would say absolutely it is. So... um, I mean, that's what Satan is known to do. Right. Did God really say? Mm -hmm. So let's see what else they have to say here on point number three. The father of the prosperity gospel was a faith-healing preacher from Oklahoma. The man who could be considered the father of modern prosperity gospel teaching is Oral, Oral Roberts. He grew up in poverty and struggled with tuberculosis as a teenager. He claims he decided to dedicate his life to Christian ministry after being miraculously healed during a revival meeting. The faith-healing evangelist became so influential that he started his own school, Oral Roberts University. At the height of his influence, Roberts oversaw a ministry that brought in $110 million in annual revenue. You know, I think um, back when we were living in Washington, I think the church that we went to was, you know, very Pentecostal, I believe. That pastor was a Oral Roberts University graduate, so. and uh, we've heard stories that he's uh, gone a bit off the rails here lately uh, in the last few years. He was a very kind and loving man uh, when we were there, but uh, yeah, just interesting. But now we would have no reason to doubt uh, Oral Roberts' miraculous healing by God. You know, we right. while we don't believe in faith healers uh, or the gift of healing necessarily— You know, we certainly believe that God does still heal miraculously. You know, God does as he wills. We certainly believe that. Um, But it is always interesting that those who proclaim the prosperity gospel the loudest are those that are prospering the most, it seems. Um, So, you know, kind of the question to me is, do they proclaim this prosperity gospel because they are successful? Or is it because they're successful that they proclaim it? I don't know if that makes any sense. It's kind of like a chicken or the egg type yeah. question, right? Yeah. Which one came first? They're successful, so they claim it, or they claim it because they're successful. I don't know. Um, basically, right, 
like, are they um, successful and believe in God? And therefore being godly makes you successful? I don't know. Uh, it just, it's interesting to me, you know, uh, because Oral Roberts was immensely successful. Like you said, $110 million a year. I believe he started a hospital. Uh, he's got his own, um, you know, university. Obviously, he's not alive anymore, but um, just interesting, right? You know, the uh, our worst uh, representation of the prosperity gospel is Jesse Duplantis, right? And, uh, you know, walking around flashing all of his Rolex watches and, you know, yeah. Um, but again, it's like he was able to get immensely worldly prosperity uh, or worldly, yeah, prosperous. So, you know, is is it because of his, I don't know. I mean, obviously you could go with the idea that like, well, he's just a huckster and, you know, he's just scamming people out of their money. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's I just an interesting thought. They love the world. Satan offers us the world, and Satan has to ask God permission to test us, and God even tests our faith by letting us be successful or either by being poor, and that's a harder test. Um, if God gives you riches, and it could be Satan, let me, let me give them the world and see if they stay faithful to you, or let me take away everything and see if they stay faithful to you. But I can see this as being a test of a lot of people's faith to see who they're going to follow. Are they going to go after the heavenly things or the worldly things? And we have to be discerning because riches will steer us away from God. Um, it's not good for everybody to be financially uh, prosperous in that respect, luxurious lives. It's not good. Uh, Jesus told us to pray what is good, what is according to God's will. Riches is not good for everybody. It causes people to turn away from God. It just reveals where their heart really was, if that's the focus of their prayers. Um, so we can't see prosperity, money, as a sign of someone's faith. Um, because that's that has nothing to do with your faith in God. I mean, you can you can see it, but if you do believe that that someone prospering financially, living luxuriously is a sign of their faith that they have greater faith than you. Like you must really believe that. Like that's a that's a lie. It's if you read the Bible for yourself, like what we're talking about here, you will you will discern. <laughs> you can only discern through God's word. Um it is just a shame that I'm glad yeah. that we, when we went to that Jesse Duplantis healing night or whatever at that church, um, I was like, we were like out of my skin to get out of that room. I oh remember gosh. that is really what set us off on our, our transition in faith, um, away from that more charismatic. Yeah. Uh, so in a, one sense, we're thankful that Jesse Duplantis broke us, um, with just how grotesque it was, we thought. And, uh, Set us free, if you will. So, um, but yeah. I will mention on Oral Roberts, I believe John MacArthur, if I remember correctly, he has a lengthy bit in his book, uh, Strange Fire, where he sort of uh, discusses the false teachings 
of sort of the more charismatic movements. And he has, a, I think, a decent chunk in there about Oral Roberts. I don't remember exactly what he says in there, but if you want to go pick up a copy of Strange Fire, we'll link it down in the show notes. It's a good read. But none of it was necessarily glowing about Oral Roberts. So, um, but we'll keep this thing moving here. Do you want to read point number four? The Word of Faith movement helped spread the prosperity gospel. The most prominent evangelist of the prosperity gospel and the father of the Word of Faith movement was Kenneth E. Hagan. One of his most influential ideas was his distinguishing between the logos, the written word of God, and the rhema, the spoken or revealed word. He argued that rhema is the means by which believers activate God's promises. As Russell S. Woodbridge says, more than any other factor, the Word of Faith movement was the vehicle responsible for spreading prosperity teaching across the United States in the late 20th century. Yeah. Uh, I Activating. Think this idea just makes sense. I don't like that term. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't like the term either. But, you know, if you're believing in a message that if you speak something in faith, you'll receive it, and you live in a culture that's made money its idol— Mm-hmm. Like, what else would you ask for more than material prosperity? So it makes sense that the word of faith movement would be what catapulted the prosperity gospel in a sense, right? Because mm-hmm. what else are you praying for more than money in a culture that I loves mean, money? who had the faith? I mean, all the apostles. Why weren't they writing? Why wasn't Paul writing to the churches? Just speak it. Just whatever, you know, he was correcting them on sin or he was encouraging them. Nothing about... Just keep saying what you want to be true. Say, I'm holy. Say this. Say, I've overcome this sin. (laughs) You won't find any of that. Well, I wonder, too, if, again, don't really know, but if, well, I, I would guess, right, that more in the prosperity gospel mindset, you know, especially with this idea of Kenneth Hagin, the Rima being almost, you know, more important, right, the What's they, what do they call it here? The spoken or revealed mm-hmm. word, you know, why they're so into prophecy and mm-hmm. sort of maintaining that because they need this new revelation. I mean, this is again, Sarah Young, right? Scripture wasn't good enough. She needed to have a revelation from God for her, right? She needed that right. Rima almost, what Kenneth Hagin is talking about Scripture here. Scripture wasn't enough. Yeah, that's what prophecy is today. People have redefined what it means. And so that's why they have these. They have, you know, their prophecy school out in Bethel. And they say, whatever you speak, you're prophesying. You're saying what you will and that it's good and it'll come to pass. It isn't teaching them you're hearing from God. You're just speaking it. But they also believe like whatever pops into your head because you pray, God, sanctify my imagination. So whatever I do think of is from you. That's a lie. (laughs) That's why it's like... um... Word of faith almost has infected all of the charismatic kind of movement because it's like it's even goes to the spiritual gifts. Well, just ask God, ask God for the gift of tongues and he'll give it to you. Ask God for prophecy and revelation. I mean, right, that's what Sarah Young did. Lord, I want to hear from you about, oh, okay, well, I'll give you a message. All you had to do was ask and I'll just make you a prophet, right? I'll prophesy to you. And, you know, it's just so word of faith. It's kind of covered everything. It is kind of crazy how they teach you have to declare it, name it, and claim it. 
they don't teach you to pray and just simply ask, like a child asking their father. Like God is our heavenly father. And when we pray to him, we ask him for things. We are not told when we pray to God to demand and declare and speak it into existence. That's not faith. Faith is coming to him and just simply asking. And in your asking, you're asking because you know he's good and merciful, but you trust whatever his answer is, is for your good. So if you ask for money, riches, you know, you're asking with the wrong intent anyway, so you can spend it on, you know, for your pleasure. Um, if something is just for your pleasure it's and it's not going to draw you closer to God, his answer is probably going to be no. So it has to do with trusting God's answer. And it has nothing to do with God's will when you come and demand, declare, and speak it into existence. That's not faith in God. That's faith in your words, thinking that you're creating something. That isn't a faith and trust and love for God at all. You're just using him as a means to get what you want. Yeah, and I think, you know, that was something, again, I was thinking about, you know, just experiences in my jail ministry experience, you know, kind of the idea of just speaking or doing stuff to kind of get your your big ask, you know, one of the things I would see in the jail and a lot of them held to more charismatic views and stuff like that. Um, so I'm sure it extends beyond the jail walls for, you know, a lot of other people, but they would kind of, you know, pray or they would speak about like real spiritual matters and growth and stuff like that. But it was almost like it was kind of a lead up to what their big ask was, which was generally for them, right? It was favor in the courts favor in the jail. So it'd be like, you know, I'm reading every day, I'm praying, we're doing Bible studies and, you know, hey, I'm going to court tomorrow, you know, and you almost got the sense that like, are you trying to like, twist God's arm to give you favor in the courts because you're doing all the right things, right? Which, you know, the jailhouse religion is a term for a reason, right? They do all the right things, hopefully get that favor from God, and then they're out and they all backslide. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like, look, God, I'm doing all the things you want me to do. So maybe you can help me out here in the courts, right? Kind of like God owes me. Yeah. And, you know, you, and that was what it made me think of with the prosperity gospel. Um, people that are focused more on the worldly prosperity. It's like, I'm going to go and lay the foundation with all of the, uh, you know, spiritual things that I'm supposed to do. But really, the big reason underneath all of it is that I'm hoping to sort of, you know, twist God's arm, if you will, or give God the reason to really bless me in the way I want to be blessed, which is ultimately worldly prosperity, financial prosperity. So it's like, again, I don't know if this is necessarily true. And I'm certainly not saying it's true for everybody. But you know, that was kind of the sense that I got, especially in the jail. And when you read things like this, where, you know, I'm supposed to be blessed like Jesse Duplantis. So I'm going to do all the, you know, go through the motions of the Christian life. But the real big ask underneath all of it is, I need some financial blessing, Lord, um, which is a shame, right? You shouldn't be trying to trick or coerce God into doing anything, right? Yeah. And if it is like a faith thing, like you ask uh, and you, you don't receive because you, I don't know, they'll say like, <clears throat> you don't ask in faith. But that is like, that is completely works-based because we could look at people like Jesse Duplantis and say he has what he has, and you wouldn't even think because of faith. Um, 
not because he asked God, but because his words, he has what he has. Like he can boast in his words. Um, Cause not the logo. So the rhema, you know, the rhema part is the spoken. He spoke it into existence is what it is. So you kind of look at him like godlike, like you're idolizing him. Because if we think we're little gods and we can speak things into existence, well, let's say people can idolize us. People can worship us and give us glory for what we have. Um, it is it is so twisted when you really think on it. Yeah, the way you pray, I want to pray like you pray, and then I'll be effective in my faith walk. No. <laughs> yeah, I can't um, boast of anything I have. I can't say I have this because I had faith and I and I activated it. Do we activate or do we just simply ask? Did and the we widow Nain's son activate his faith when he was dead and Christ raised him? No. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Yeah, exactly. So. Like we don't. So saying this word, we activate it, that's saying we are the ones who cause our blessings. So God gets no glory. It's like he just gives you instruction. Hey, if you do this, you'll receive. You don't need to ask me. You don't need to ask in faith or know who I am and and, and praise me for my goodness and my giving. It's kind of like we don't need to get from God. We got this. Yeah, it's like almost like the God has a blessing ready and he's like, oh, I'm going to and he's like, "Oh, you said, Lord, can I please have it?" instead of saying, "Lord, I receive it now." You should have made that demand of me. I guess I'll keep ble- like yeah, yeah, so it's a twisted view of God. It's, uh, I don't know. It's just well, we'll move it on. disturbing. There's a lot we could go down. <laughs> we don't want to keep you guys here for four hours. Yeah. So we'll move this oh. thing along here to point number five. These are all connected. Like, they're all like the same. <laughs> well, right. I mean, these are just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're all kind of tied I can say the same, the same thing on all of them. So here, read okay. point number five. The concept of seed faith is a cornerstone of the movement. The doctrine of seed faith posits that financial giving, particularly to ministries that promote prosperity gospel preachers, can be likened to planting a seed that will eventually yield a harvest of blessings. You sow a financial seed into a ministry as an act of faith, and in turn, God will multiply that seed in the form of various blessings, which could be financial prosperity, physical healing, or other forms of favor. Essentially, it represents a transactional relationship between the believer and God, facilitated through a financial gift. Yep, I think we're all pretty familiar with this. This is like the classic kind of 90s televangelist, you know, late night uh, infomercial kind of a thing. And one of the verses that you'll hear a lot in regards to this seed faith principle is Malachi 3.10. Let me get Malachi 3.10 pulled up here. Um, Do you want to read Malachi 3.10? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Yeah, so, you know, it'll often go something to the effect of, you know, this is the one place that God asks you to test him, right? He's waiting for you to step out in faith so he can pour out his blessing on you. That's kind of the way, at least it was always pitched to us. And 
Hmm. Now, I would say while this verse isn't necessarily taken out of context, I think its overall point is, you know, because the point of Malachi 3.10 is not necessarily your financial blessing. The point of Malachi 3.10 is repentance. Mm -hmm. The Lord is calling his people to come back to him, Mm -hmm. right? So its application in regards to financial prosperity, I think, is a stretch. At least that's my opinion of it. Um, Because God does tell them that if they return to God, you know, if they repent and they return, uh, because up to that point, they had departed from their faith and God's hand of blessing was no longer on them. But if they returned, then God would once again bless them and he would remo- uh, remove the curses that had been over their land. That was kind of, that's the idea of Malachi 3.10. Not necessarily, hey, if you pay your tithe to me, I'm going to flood you with so much financial prosperity, you can't even take it. Because again, this flies in the face of reality. And the Christian faith doesn't fly in the face of reality. So when you see all of your most faithful tithers and, you know, givers and, you know, for decades contributing to the to the cause of Christ in this world, and it financial prosperity isn't pouring out from heaven all over them, you have to conclude, well, maybe reading Malachi 3.10 as a guarantee of financial prosperity isn't correct, right? Because that would go against what we see in reality here. So, And again, that's asking with wrong motives. We need to always go back to that. If God cares about you building his character, his image into you, the fruit of the spirit, it isn't going to happen if you're just chasing riches and using God's word as a means to have worldly riches. Yeah. I mean... So I again, I don't think that they're necessarily taking Malachi 3.10 out of uh, context, but I think the misapplication comes in assuming that we can dictate um, or determine what manner God is going to bless us in. And, you know, as with all that would adhere to the prosperity gospel, the intention would seem to sort of dictate or determine that God's going to bless us financially. We give money, so we get more money is kind of the idea, right? Um, and I would say not necessarily, right? Uh, and not most likely, you know, maybe your blessings are going to come in the way of an abundance of the Holy Spirit or like the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you know? So rather than financially, you're going to get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You'll get an abundance of those gifts in your life, right? We don't get to determine in what manner God is going to bless us in. I'd rather be like, oh, you know, thanking God that he helped me overcome being easily angered. Like those are the riches of heaven, um, self-control, um, the ability to forgive and have a, a friendship or a relationship with a family member restored, um, thinking on those types of things, um, not just financial or a healing because even a physical healing is a worldly thing. Um, those are the main two things, money and physical healing, um, that people go after. People aren't praying, help me forgive, Lord, because your word says if I don't forgive, you won't forgive me. Um, gosh, there's so much richness in the gospel and the things that God is offering. And Satan is just over here. This is what God wants you to have. Like, it's so twisted. And then then there's 
the spiritual fruit, the joy of fellowship with other believers, um, just caring about the good of others when the prosperity gospel is self-focused, all about right. my it, money, my health. It makes more sense too when you look at it as, you know, other blessings aside from financial prosperity. When again you look back to what was that, Matthew 7, 11 that we read, you know, store up your treasures in heaven. Well, if God's going to bless us, prosper us in some way, why wouldn't it be more likely in treasures that are being stored for us eternally mm -hmm. rather than just giving to us what I've momentarily? I've said that to people, like, you know, things like, well, in heaven, we will have those things. And people have said things like, well, my God's bigger than that. I'm like, what do you mean? Where do you get that from? bigger than what he already described, like you're adding to his word and adding to his promises. It's it's still like your focus is on only worldly things and that your heavenly treasures aren't enough. You're like, well, no, that's, that's not enough. Of, I need the worldly treasures too. I think that's a form of blasphemy. Um, you know, it's blasphemous in one sense to discount or remove attributes from God, you know, where people only want to focus on love. God is love and they never, he's not, you know, judgment in these sorts of things, right? Because he's not holy and righteous or whatever. But I think also in the same vein, adding attributes to God or things would likewise be blasphemous. So saying, my God's bigger than that. You're like, he's bigger than what he's revealed of himself in his word that seems blasphemous, or he's different than what he's revealed of himself. So I'd be careful, you know, ascribing attributes to God, just as I would be from removing attributes from God. I think it's blasphemous in both ways. And I think it's in Hebrews, I meant to have this written down, but in talking about those um, in the Old Testament, in faith, you know, someone believed, you know how it lists like a lot of the names yeah, the like heroes the chapter. Yeah, eleven. They believe, but it even says, you know, some of them didn't see it happen. Like Abraham, you know, obviously, all, the promise, um, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars and the sand and the sea. He believed it, although he didn't. Obviously, he didn't see that happen. He didn't live forever to see it, but he believed it. Yeah. He would have all these descendants. Where are they going to be? Where is he going to know them? In heaven. They're going to be in heaven. He get Those are the treasures, people's souls, your descendants, your family of God. Um, he wasn't promised worldly blessing. Yes, he was blessed, but it was seek first the kingdom of God. Those treasures— his faith was in the thing he wouldn't receive until he was in heaven. And it mentions other things, too, that people, they didn't receive until heaven. But their faith, they were looking forward to that heavenly kingdom. Their hope wasn't in the things of this world to see it manifest now. Because our, our treasures are only going to be in heaven and that's what we're going to rejoice over, all the people who are in heaven. I had a dream, I don't know, a year or two ago, whatever it was, but I had a dream. I was in, in heaven, whatever it was. It was just like outside. And in this dream, I was seeing people in heaven that, like, I was surprised they were there. Like, I was glad they were there, but you just don't know who might show up that you hadn't talked to in a long time. 
on the earth. And I remember in my dream, I was, whenever I saw a person in heaven, I was so glad they were there. And all I could do is praise God. Like that was my joy was seeing people in heaven. That was it. I wasn't in heaven with worldly riches. Cause when we, some people read these scriptures and they're like, Oh, we're going to have treasures in heaven. And they're thinking about worldly treasures, you know, mansions and, but, and I, I just remember that dream because that was my joy. That was it. And it caused me to praise God. I couldn't stop praising God. And even, I know, I, a lot of people don't think much of dreams, but I've had another dream where we were praying for rain. And everybody got their, we got rain. It was from God. And everybody had their buckets. And they were collecting the rain. And I couldn't even, I didn't even care about the rain. I just wanted to praise God. Like, in this dream, I was just crying. Yeah. praising God it's like, uh, that he was blessing. And I didn't even care to gather the rain. I was just like, God, you're so good. It's like Peter in the boat, you know, pulls yeah. all the fish and he falls down at Jesus yeah. rather than, you know, deal with the fish. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, all right, let's keep this thing moving here. Point number six, honey. Television was the primary tool that helped to spread prosperity gospel teachings. Televangelism, the practice of using television to broadcast religious services and programs, began to flourish in the 1970s and 1980s with the deregulation of broadcasting and the expansion of cable television. Many of the most famous televangelists were associated with the prosperity gospel movement and its teachings. Yep. Just hmm. as a side note, uh, this podcast is far better when I actually stumble upon a topic Nikki's interested in. Uh, you know, when we're like, we're talking politics, she's like, I have a note to mention. And then I'm like, we're talking false teaching. And she's like, there ain't enough time in the day. Um, it's definitely good. But uh, Are you saying I'm talking too much? No, I like it. It's just funny. Like when I'm, you know, dealing with, hey, let's talk about Trump. You're like, whatever. Let's just get it over with. Worldly like, cares. I, I'm like, I don't care because yeah. politics, it's like. Disgusting. Um, so it is interesting, this point number six here, that TV was the major vehicle, you know, that was used to spread one form of false teaching. And in our day, you know, it's social media now that's used to spread uh, the heresy that we're dealing with, mm -hmm. right, which I would say is the pride religion, or the pride gospel, if you will, right, that gospel that says, well, you know, love is love, you know, love your neighbor, God is love. Therefore, all forms of sexual perversion and deviancy is accepted and even encouraged by God. Like, that's what we're dealing with today. So, you know, while we're mm -hmm. still battling sort of the old false teaching of prosperity gospel, we're now kind of fighting a two-front war, if you will, um, because we have the pride religion that social media has brought about with us. So it is interesting that these two, mm -hmm. you know, forms of, you know, uh, I guess, global or worldwide broadcasting is kind of brought about and spread to different forms of false teaching. Um, I mean, it's that, it just makes me think of that scripture. It says like in the last days, they're going to heap up teachers that tickle, say things that tickle their ears. And it definitely seems that way. I don't know how it could be any worse than this. Um, like this is maybe what Jesus was talking about. And it makes sense at, at one level, right? Because when TV was first introduced and it became widespread and 
you know, there's only a few channels. So the people that you see on them become bigger than life and iconic and, you know, these sorts of things. So when you finally see the preacher that's on TV, it's Oral Roberts, you know, it, he must be a man of God. He must be a blessed immensely. How else would he be on this TV? Like these people, I mean, yeah, television stars aren't what they once were. They might make more money today than they ever made. But the television stars of, you know, yesteryear, if you will, like the, uh, you know, I can't think of the, the names anymore, but like, you know, the Aubrey Hepburns and those were like, there was only a few channels, only a few movies. And these people mm. were bigger than life, you know? And so it would make sense that as you see the television preacher, you know, as a young person or early on, they're bigger than life, right? This must be God's, you know, chosen person, right? Everybody's seeing them and hearing them. And, you know, so it is, makes sense that, you know, TV would be what spreads it. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to read point number seven here? The prosperity gospel discounts what the Bible teaches, especially about wealth and suffering. Many Christian scholars and ethicists argue the prosperity gospel's focus on material prosperity undermines the teachings of Jesus, who emphasized humility, compassion, and the normalcy of suffering. Yep. And I think this point here kind of just sums up the teaching in a nutshell. Um, and they do go on in here. They give six keys uh, from John Piper in identifying the prosperity gospel, which we're going to get into in just a little bit. Um, but I think this point here, it highlights the importance of not reading into scripture what you want to see. Um, and also, as we kind of mentioned before, not building your theology on one or two verses, mm -hmm. right? So you don't want to just read Malachi 3.10 and because you want money, you read it and go, yay, God's going to give me money. You know that scripture, but you don't even know what Malachi is about. Right. You don't want to just scripture you know out of there, base that... it on that, right? <laughs> because you go, yay, God's going to give me money. But then you discount the repentance angle that we talked about from Malachi 3.10. And then also you're discounting all the other teachings throughout the entire Bible that warn of material prosperity you know, teaches, like we mentioned before in the Sermon on the Mount, that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of man. You know, you're throwing it all away and you just say, Malachi 3.10, this is the verse I'm interpreting the entire Bible through, right? That's flawed. And I say it speaks more to our sin nature than to God's nature. So we got to be careful about that. Because again, mm -hmm. our human nature is never going to allow us to open the Bible up and like seek out uh, normalcy of suffering, and mm -hmm. right, we're never going to, that takes the spirit of God to like, you know, give us faith and joy through all of that. We're going to open it up and right. be like, how can I prosper now right here? And yeah. all these sinful and fleshly ways, right? That's our nature. You so, know, what's a better testimony of the goodness of God is when you see someone suffering in every way, you know, like Job, we don't even see people suffering that bad, obviously, but that they praise God and they have his joy. And that's the, what the world can't give. The world can't give joy in the midst of suffering. Um, no, I mean, all that only comes from God. So that's the power of God is to have joy and contentment when you live in lacking worldly things, not having as much as your neighbor. Or, right. I mean, it's Paul's teaching, you know, when he's praying to have the thorn in his side removed, right? And God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, right? Should we go, boy, Paul's faith is lacking. 
Um, yeah. or, you know, when he, you know, he's, I think he right. goes on to say when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And it made mm-hmm. me think years ago, I don't remember the man's name or where we were, but it was a gentleman who had ALS and, you know, ALS is a wicked illness that basically, you know, shuts you down slowly to where essentially you're a mind locked in a dead body, if you will, kind of. And, you know, he, I think was to the point where he was, you know, he could still talk, but that was about all he could do is becoming paralyzed throughout his entire body. And, but he mentioned, you know, his faith had gotten stronger as his Mm -hmm. illness got greater. And his point was that he no longer had anything he could rely on besides God, Mm. right? His faith, you know, he didn't have prosperity. He couldn't even find joy in many worldly things. So it was like, but again, would you go, boy, is your faith lacking? Where he's like, no, I praise God more now than I ever did when I was healthy. Wow. So you're like, what a weak faith, right? Of course you wouldn't. You'd go, my goodness, I hope I can have faith like that someday. So uh, I think, yeah, it, yeah. it definitely um, is a shame, you know, and that's why, again, you don't want to just find whatever verse in whatever way satisfies your flesh and go, that's what I'm reading the entire Bible through. It's definitely yeah, dangerous. We so. don't take our riches to heaven with us. So when you're on your deathbed, is Jesus going to be enough? Are you thinking all I need is Jesus? Um, because if he wasn't your joy, your main focus, your main treasure while you were alive, <laughs> I just I can't imagine. Like the people who, you know, like the guy you just described, he's assured of his love for God, his salvation. But it's like the rich man, um, he's so focused on the blessings, not, he doesn't have joy in Jesus. It's more in his receiving. Even our normal life here almost seems to be like a roadmap or a guide to get us to heaven, like. Because as you get older, right, and your body starts to break down, you get older, you're sickly, like that's the natural course now. And it's almost like it drives you as you get closer to death to be more reliant on God, right? But what are you supposed to say if health and wealth should Mm. be yours at all times? Because you speak it like, should you just be, I don't know, rocky until the moment you drop dead? Of course not. Because again, that flies in the face of reality. So um it's definitely dangerous. We don't want to read scripture that way. Mm. But uh, do you want to read point number eight here? We're almost to the last point. Prosperity gospel beliefs are common among American churchgoers. Yeah, um, we already kind of discussed some of those uh, numbers earlier when we were looking at that survey. Um, but I do find it interesting that the prosperity gospel as they kind of mentioned, it's been on the rise here since, you know, maybe the late 70s and 80s. And simultaneously, faith in America has been on the decline, Mm. and a biblical worldview has been on the decline. Um, I have this chart here, and it says, you know, basically in the 70s, and this is from statista.com, I think, in the 70s, about 90% claimed a Christian faith. And that number's you know, it says down in the 2010s, it was at 71%. And we know from other surveys we've looked at today, about 60 to 65% claim a Christian faith. And that's just those who claim Christianity as their religion. But again, we've mentioned several times here, 
in the most recent surveys, only about 6% of this nation claims to have a biblical worldview. So it just, I guess it would make sense to me that as a false teaching or as false teachings rise, faithful adherence would fall away, Mm -hmm. you know, which is sad, but it does provide an opportunity because in one sense, you could say it doesn't mean that people are necessarily resistant to Jesus in the gospel message, but rather they're resistant to a false gospel and they're seeing the falseness of this prosperity teaching that's sweeping the nation. As I said, roughly 76% believe that, you know, God wants to prosper them financial and or financially. So maybe even, you know, people that maybe thought they were Christian, but again, like us, they get introduced to Jesse DePlantis and they go, that's Christianity. I want nothing to do with it. And they fall away. Or even yeah. people that might have been, um, presented the gospel, but again, you get presented it in this worldly way. Again, you're giving them, you know, hey, I want to teach you to live just like the world, but in a different way. And they're like, well, I'll just live like the world then. Right. But, uh, you know, so in one sense, you could say this is hopeful because we've been trying the counterfeit. We've been trying the fake, the false for all these decades. It's not working. So why don't we see that as an opportunity to actually get back to the authentic in the real and then see what happens. Because at, you know, the dawn of this civilization here in America, we were probably preaching far more an authentic, true Christ. Mm -hmm. And it swept the nation and changed the world, changed the nation here. And then as we've gotten away from that and false teachings have risen, people are falling away in droves. So it does provide us an opportunity, I think. You ever met someone and they were like, yeah, I used to be a Christian, but it didn't really work for me. You know, like, so they um, were probably presented the prosperity gospel because if it didn't work for you and then you walked away, yeah, that was probably what they were presented. So if you come across someone who said that, they, they've never heard the gospel because if it didn't work for them, what does that mean that you came to Christ to ask forgiveness and he said no? What do they mean by that? What else do they mean? Yeah, that's a good uh Good measuring stick there. Um, All right, let's read this final point. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. In a 2015 article for the Gospel Coalition, the Christian ethicist David W. Jones explained five theological errors of prosperity gospel teaching. The Abrahamic covenant, covenant is a means to material entitlement. Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. Faith is a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. Prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't think we would disagree with any of those points uh, from David W. Jones. And therefore, I think we would agree that the prosperity gospel and all of its sort of offspring, the word of faith, the health and wealth, whatever you want to call it, is false teaching. Um, But I do want to make this distinction, I probably should have made it earlier, you know, that while we believe that the prosperity gospel is a false teaching, I don't believe that all of its adherents are false Christians. I think they've just been fed a false gospel, and they're trying and being faithful as best they understand it. Well, that was us. 
Right. I, I believe we were saved, but we were very deceived. Um, you just follow, you just, you trust people. And we weren't discerning because we weren't studying the scriptures for ourselves. And I think that was a big reason why we just weren't studying. And then when we would read the Bible, we will, we were reading it through the prosperity gospel lens, um, instead of just letting scripture, um, interpret scripture, just letting it speak for itself. We, I don't think we were looking at it that way. No. So I do want to just make that point. You know, it doesn't mean that we discount or dismiss the faith of anyone that adheres to this right. sort of gospel. Um, but we should be lovingly as best we can, you know, and I'm definitely guilty of this. I'm not the most in your face sort of aggressive person. Uh, so there's probably times where I could have spoken up, but it's just not my nature, mm -hmm. you know, but if you are presented those opportunities, do the best you can, you know, love them, try to guide them, you know, and pray for them and stuff like that. So but we would agree with that. So I do want to jump back to the six points that John Piper made um, to look out for with the prosperity gospel. So we'll just go through these. He says, the first one here is an absence of serious doctrine of the biblical necessity and normalcy of suffering, um, which again, nobody talks about that today. Nobody talks about suffering today Nobody in encourages those who are suffering um, and reminds them that it, it's a blessing. And it, you know, also for the church, when someone in your church is suffering, that is opportunity for you to care for them. I mean, Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you. Um, and that was among you. He didn't just say in the world, among believers, you will have the poor among you. Yeah, it's always like, you know, when somebody comes and they're like, I have, you know, prophecy and, and these sorts of things, they're like, oh, it's the, you know, apostolic gift and all these sorts of things. But like, no one ever gets someone when they're suffering and they're like, oh, remember when the apostles were suffering for Jesus and they were filled with joy. I hope you are filled with joy, my brother. You're just like the apostles in your suffering. <laughs> that should be more accurately the message, you know, but it's never that, right? It's always the good things. Yeah. Um, they just go away feeling shame and embarrassed that? to Acts come to church. Four, you know, when the apostles were beaten and yeah. they went away uh, rejoicing that they were able to suffer for the name. So and say, I bind you, Satan. <laughs> yeah, no one ever is like, I'm suffering just like the apostles. Yeah. Praise God. But just think how that message that you, you know, you can be healed if you have faith and you speak it into existence. You're causing people who are, have a disability or their child has a disability to not want to come to church because they're embarrassed because if they keep showing up day, you know, week after week and they're still not healed and everybody can see their lack of faith and they're going to feel judged. Yeah, it could lead to that for sure. Um, his second point here, he says, so the six keys to detecting the prosperity gospel, key number two is absence of a clear and prominent doctrine of self-denial. Mm. Again, we never talk of suffering. Very often don't talk of self-denial. Uh, he says key number three here, absence of serious exposition of scripture. And again, this was one of our warning signs that we mentioned um, from Vody Bakum, his three red flags in the church today, um, not expositing scripture. So definitely that's a warning sign. 
Uh, number four here, he says, a failure to deal with tensions in mm. scripture. And I would just say on this point, you know, don't run away from hard teachings, you know, especially if you're a pastor, whatever happens to be, don't run away from hard teaching. All the answers are there and they can be understood, you know, whether that's Malachi 310, if you're discussing that verse, you know, don't run away from it. The Sermon on the Mount, whatever happens to be, or even if it's heaven forbid, you're preaching on Leviticus, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're talking about giving of the law. Don't run away from it, right? It can all be understood properly and it should all be understood properly because every jot and tittle of it is important, right? Yeah. God wouldn't have given us any of it if it wasn't important. So there may be more preeminent and like essential doctrines than others, but it doesn't mean the unessential or non-essential aren't important. It is all important. Don't run away from it. If you're reading about slavery in the Bible, don't run away from it. It's there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, it says, point number five here, church leaders who have exorbitant lifestyles. And yeah, I would say that is a warning sign because pastor is a special calling and it's not for everyone. You know, if sort of fame, if leadership, reputation, and this sort of stuff is things that you want in your pastorship, I think you're in the wrong job, right? I think the number one driving factor for a pastor has got to be guiding others in righteousness and um, being an example for others. And mm -hmm. I think in a sense, right, you know, if you're Joel Osteen, you're living in, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, mansions worth tens of millions of dollars and stuff like that. I don't know. I don't know that I would say you're in the right business um, because your heart should be for the world and for the lost. And um, I don't know. To me, it does certainly rub you the wrong way. I'm not saying you can't be rich and be a pastor and these sorts of things. I'm not saying that. But um, there's no self denial there. There's no no caring about the needs of your flock. Like it's so embarrassing and shameful to live that kind of lifestyle when you know there are people who are in your church who are living in, you know, a rundown trailer, like in a trailer park. And then to just keep telling them, just sow more seeds of faith and just patiently wait when you can, you can help them now. Like that is how God moves and blesses people is through other believers. It's not just going to fall from heaven like manna. Like it's not how money comes to you. And we care for one another. Like he's probably never going to preach on Acts or the whole church and they didn't own anything. They just shared everything with each other. Um, it's just very shameful. They're like, yeah, Pastor, can I uh, share your Bentley? It's like, eh. Not that. And they love to talk uh, about how generous they are, how they're able to just write checks for thousands of dollars to help people. They boast about that. But what about the people you, who are actually in your church? You are the shepherd. You are shepherd over them. And how could no, you let that happen? I just... I definitely think it's uh, something to watch out for. Again, I wouldn't say just because they're rich, that means they're ungodly. I mean, certainly not. There's rich, godly people. Um, but I think for pastor, it's a, definitely a touchy subject. Um, but point number six here, this final one, he says, prominence of self and marginalization of the greatness of God. And yeah, we would certainly agree with that. Neil. You know, again, we've talked about this before where 
you know, you go to the church and every sermon, you know, every verse in the Bible is somehow about you, right? God exists for you and he exists mm-hmm. to make your life great. Those topical sermons, yeah, they're about you. Run away from that teaching, right? Because God is great. We exist mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. That needs to be the focal point of the teaching. You know, all of scripture points to Christ, not you. So if it's the other way around, mm-hmm. that should, you know, get the hair standing up on the back of your neck. So that is the six keys from John Piper. And those are the nine points of the false teaching of the prosperity gospel, at least as far as the gospel coalition is concerned. So why is this important to Christians, right? And I think, I mean, of course it's important. There's nothing more important than having a clear understanding of God's word um, for our own lives and souls, but also when we're sharing the faith, we want to make sure that we're sharing the right faith and not leading others astray. You know, so we should be, we all should be leery of our own kind of sinful ability to twist scripture sort of to our liking and making it say what we want it to say rather than what it does say. You know, so proper understanding of God's word is of the utmost important for, uh, importance for Christians. There's almost mm-hmm. nothing more important for Christians. Um, so what should we do about it? You know, I think we should search scripture uh, with an open mind and a willing heart, I think, to kind of go wherever it leads us. Um, and that should be done every time we read the Bible. We don't want to carry preconceived ideas mm-hmm. into the Bible when we're reading. We should be doing as best we can to be reading the Bible every day mm-hmm. um, with an open mind for what it's saying. You know, even mm-hmm. old passages that you, you know, have read before, try to, you know, read them with fresh eyes and stuff like that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I know a lot of people, and I used to do this too, I would just jump around scripture and read a little here and there and really just kind of avoid a lot of the Old Testament. I might just like Genesis and that would be it. Um, I really encourage you to read through the Bible. You can have your time of jumping around and going to your favorite scriptures or Psalms. So do both. So that's what I've been doing. I I don't really stick to like the one-year reading plan. I read a lot slower um, so I do the one year or however long it takes me. I'm going to read straight through no matter how long it takes me. I'm going to do that because a lot of people get this mindset. They're like, oh, I'm so behind in the daily, you know, reading for the year that they give up. So don't even try to do that. Just stick to your own pace, reading through the Bible. It's not about how quickly you read it. Just read through it. If it's a chapter a day, but also be reading the other parts that you know, you remember what they are, what they say, and how encouraging they are. Yes, go to the Psalms. Read Paul's letters to the church. Because um, I know I need that balance. Because we can read the history part, but we also need that encouragement part and reminder um, that Jesus already, you know, the gospel, it is finished. So we need the the types and shadows the Old Testament, but we also need that reminder that it has been finished and how to live the Christian life. Um, we do need both. So I don't I don't invi- advise just reading through the Bible and you're just stuck in the Old Testament for a year. Um, I, I highly encourage you to do to do both, read through it and stick to the other scriptures that that re- really nourish you. Because there's this aspect where we do need to be encouraged, but we also need to know like historical fact 
of scripture yeah, as sure. well. I mean, that's kind of how you get to the point of testing scripture with scripture. Yeah. You have to kind of know scripture, right? Um, to be able to test it. So, and that's important, right? Because again, like we mentioned, if you just read Malachi 3 and you get to 310, you know, and that's all you have, you have you have to read more and know more to figure out, does this actually line up with the rest of what scripture is teaching me? Right. And if it doesn't, then maybe the way I'm reading Malachi 310 is improper and I need to reread it or read a little mm -hmm. bit extra to add some context to this sort of thing. So that's what we should be doing about it. Uh, and then how should we pray about it, right? Because Christians should be praying about everything. You know, I think it's important to remember that it's the Holy Spirit that gives us understanding and teaches us the truth of God's word, um, what God has spoken to us. So, you know, we should be praying every time we read the Bible for proper understanding. It's mm -hmm. funny, my daughter just came last weekend to me or something. And she's like, because we'll do our Bible study and then we pray afterwards. And she's like, Dad, in my school books, they say that we should pray before we read the Bible. And I'm like, yeah, they're probably right. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, Sarah, we should pray before and after we read, right? Mm -hmm. But we should also, I would say, be praying for godly church leaders and godly Christian friends that will help us in our interpretation and application of what we're reading, because we're all liable to get things wrong. And we need to have other people around us and then be humble enough to accept their advice or their um differing opinions and consider those things thoughtfully. So mm -hmm. um, do you have any final thoughts here on the prosperity gospel in these nine points or anything in addition before we roll on to our dis quick discussion on Sarah Young? I just want to say, um, let scripture be enough. Um, a lot of this prosperity gospel, all these false teachings, you know, there's there's just like the YouTube prosperity, false teachers, self-appointed prophets all over. Um, I encourage you to just step away from that if you are soaking all that in more than the Word of God. Uh, I, you would see the Word of God as sufficient, that you don't need to have like a mediator, someone to explain it to you. Just... Just let it be you and the Word of God so that you can be discerning. Um, just like fast, take a break from all of it. Let God's voice alone um, be all you have because that really is all you need. Um, we do have a lot of people we can follow who can tell us what Scripture means. And it's a lot of emotionalism, a lot of hype. Um, yeah, that's just my encouragement. If you do follow, just listen to a bunch of different voices, I encourage you to just listen to the voice of God just through his word and, and pray before you read. Um, yeah, that would have been great advice for Sarah Young. <laughs> uh, as we move along here into our next story here, uh, that's good advice. It's always good to take a, a quick break and step back. But do you want to um, read this headline here from Christianity Today? It says, Died, Jesus Calling devotional author, Sarah Young. Yep, Sarah Young has passed away at the age of 77. I know when I read that, I was like, I didn't know she was that old because I heard of her 
like eight years ago. I, mean, I don't know. It wasn't that long. We were in Alaska. Yeah, we always thought that she um, was sort of a younger woman. Yeah. But so, yeah, I was surprised. It makes sense. This article kind of hi highlights that she lived a very sort of reclusive life. She wasn't really out there in the public sphere. So it makes sense that we wouldn't know a lot about her. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, she was the author of Jesus Calling, which is um, one of the most popular Christian devotionals of all time. Mm -hmm. I had a different Amazon bestseller list that I had seen before where she was in two of the top 10 um, for Jesus Calling. And here she's in the top 10 twice, but it's for two different devotionals. The first one, Jesus Calling is still number 10 in the bestseller list, but a more recent one, Jesus Listens, is a another devotional apparently that she wrote. Uh, but she's a wildly successful Christian devotional author. She sold tens of millions of copies of that devotional. But, you know, like, I don't know much about her, but I do remember you liked her devotional, at least for a short time. Yeah, I know one of my friends gave me the Jesus Calling devotional, and I loved it. I, I remember, like, I wanted to read that over reading the Bible. I wanted, I would read that instead of reading the Bible. Like that was my, my little thing I did in the morning, my quick devotional. And, and I do remember it being like, how much God loves you, how God just wants to be with you. And just that kind of, just, I don't well, know, it was very self-focused, like just. And it makes sense because, you know, when you read through some stuff about Sarah Young and when she put this devotional together and stuff like that, she talks a lot about how she was sort of inspired to this by reading other devotionals and other writings and stuff from other people who had heard God's voice and these sorts of things. And again, you know, she does make the point that she wanted more than what scripture kind of offered to yeah. her. She wanted a direct revelation for her from God. So yep. when she was reading other books from other people that had a direct revelation, that sort of inspired her to go and seek out her own special interpretation from God. So it would make yeah. sense that when you read her book, you're like, this is more important to me now than the Bible. And yep. it does also make more sense the Bible. because mm -hmm. you're a woman. And I was reading an article. I'll try to link it if I can find it again from one of Christian Podcast Community's great host, Matt Slick. Um, he has a website, karm.com org, I believe. He did a review of Jesus Calling, mm. and he kind of points out how he went to Amazon and read through the reviews, and they were almost like, mm. you know, five to one almost with re high five-star reviews from women. And he made the point that Jesus Calling really um, reaches to women because it paints a feminized Jesus. Yeah, Everything wow. is Jesus loves you. He wants to protect you, and he's here to listen to you. And I heard mm. a term recently, which I thought was fantastic, and it, I may have just come to it late, but they made the point about egalitarianism. A better word for that is evangelical feminism. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that is perfect, right? Because it's feminizing Jesus. And, mm. you know, and I think that's why that devotional speaks so much to women, yeah. because it gives them what they want is this love and warm and Jesus is here for you to listen. I remember Vody Bauckham talking about that. And it was probably an old sermon, but he was just like the sissified hippie Jesus where he's just yearning for you and he's just pleading for you. Like, you know, he wants you. He just wants to hold you hold in his arms. You. Yeah, there. Stuff. yeah, it's 
it's definitely she's yeah. all about that and that's again what all of her revelations were and one point that i want to bring up from young's life sarah young uh that i think was interesting to note uh because we don't want to spend too much time on her here but she did bring up a point in her life she said that despite her academic success um she was struggling spiritually um, she was not a christian and her philosophy classes that she took in college had convinced her that life was ultimately meaningless and absurd. This was before her book. Before her book. So she was went and got like counseling degrees, I think multiple counseling degrees, um, which again, that kind of points back to Vody's uh, red flags in the church, that they're far more psychology than yes. scripture. Yep. She was heavily involved in psychology and counseling and stuff. And again, all of that secular education kind of led her to believe that life was meaningless and absurd. So consider that before you send your kids off to these secular education institutions. Another cool point about Sarah Young's life, these are just weird things that she did. Uh, she got to go to La Abri, which was Francis Schaeffer's sort of religious um, getaway, if you will. And I have recently stumbled on Francis, uh, Francis Schaeffer, really like his writings, and I thought, Boy, that would have been cool. And <laughs> you know, too bad she uh although when you read her story, that's sort of where her I would say more if you want to call it heretical kind of or false teachings about Jesus kind of began, which is sad but cool. Anyways, um just thought that was a neat point, but we don't have a lot of time to discuss everything about Sarah Young and her writings. So I'll link a critique to her book down in the show notes. And I tried to find some positive reviews. I didn't really find articles about positive reviews of her books. So maybe I'll just link Amazon and you can go and read personal uh, positive reviews on there if you want. Um, but just for Nikki and I, we would no longer recommend her writings where Nikki um, and I may have recommended them 10, 15 years ago. We would no longer. Uh, we fall into the camp that the Bible is complete and it's sufficient for every believer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the completion of canon, you know, the Bible is complete. Special revelation or special prophecy has ended. We don't believe that that continues on. Yeah, because people really do. They like that word of word from the Lord for today. You know, all these yeah, so people we would... like that daily, like a fresh word. That's a thing, uh, a term that's thrown around in in a lot of churches today, a fresh word from the Lord. And this is what he's saying today. It's like your daily horoscope. <laughs> yeah. And we would discount that, right? So that Kenneth Hagen idea of Rima or whatever that is, we don't believe in that. We wouldn't um, encourage you to go seek that out. And yeah. I do want to read one paragraph from uh, this Christianity Today article, if I can find it. Oh yeah, right here. Um, just to kind of highlight, I don't know, just what I would see as a at least a warning sign, I guess, when it comes to putting together Jesus Calling. It says, a few pages of Sarah Young's journal found their way into a women's prayer group in Nashville in the early 2000s. One of the women shared them with her husband, who was vice president of marketing at Integrity Publishers, and Integrity asked Young if she could write one message from God to the reader for every day of the year. She agreed, and they published Jesus Calling in 2004. Um, you know, 
listen, <laughs> if there's a publisher out there that needs 365 fresh new messages from God, uh, and uh, you can promise me a best-selling uh, book, you know what? Maybe I'll get you uh, 365 fresh messages from God. But it does seem, uh, I'm just kidding there, of course, but right, it seems at least suspicious, right? A publisher comes to Sarah Young and is like, I need 365 fresh revelations from God. And Sarah Young is like, well, would you know, God just happened to give me 365 fresh <laughs> revelations. You're like, well, hot dog, isn't God good? We've got a full book. Um, just, uh, I don't know, seems suspicious, right? Just uh, something I noticed. But uh, another thing that she mentioned, this kind of goes back to scripture not being sufficient for her. This was in the introduction to her book. She she said that she knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Mm. And that's when Jesus, in his kindness, gave her more, right? All of these fresh revelations, because she yearned for more than the Bible. Mm. That is a warning sign. I would uh, steer clear from that. And um, there was one other thing. Oh, Matt Slick, I think in his uh, review, he mentioned how, or he highlighted, he had um, excerpts from her 2004 original release and then her re-release in 2011 where the same revelations on the exact same day were changed. Hmm. So he's like, how can it be a revelation from God, but then the story changes? So like hmm. in one of them, the one that he highlights, she talks about Abraham and Isaac and how, you know, this story about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. But then in the 2011 refresh, the story changes to Joseph and Jacob and this sort of conflict between those two. And he's like, if God gave you this direct revelation about Abraham, Isaac, why is it different, you know, seven years later? So How is it revised? Like Interesting stuff there. But huh. anyways, um, Sarah Young's passed away. Rest in peace, I suppose. I don't know where she's spending her eternity, but uh, I hope her family is uh, doing well. So anyways, uh, do you have any last thoughts on Sarah Young before we try to squeeze in our Bible topic? No. I mean, don't donate the book if you have it. I would throw it away. Yeah, we're not a fan. <laughs> so, uh, all right, we'll try to get this Bible topic in and keep it under two hours. Please stick with us. It's a good Bible topic. I know mm -hmm. I promised last week this would not go over two hours. I try to be a man of my word. So uh, for the Bible topic th uh, this week, we're going to move on to chapter 12 of our um, the book we've been reading, which is Mark Jones' Knowing Sin. Um, if you've missed any of the previous 11 chapters that we've discussed, we do have a playlist put together on YouTube. You can go and find all of them and listen to them, get caught up, because this is an important topic. Discussing sin, it doesn't get discussed enough. So um, we definitely should be paying attention to learning about it, studying about it, and then trying to root it out in our own life. So um, this chapter here, chapter 12, was called Sin's Envy. And then it's I'm not going to sing Hey Jealousy, but you guys understand the song. Um, so obviously, it's talking about the sin of envy. And as I was thinking, you know, while I was reading this chapter, um, as one is likened to do, thinking while reading, uh, I had the thoughts that aside from pride, you know, this might be America's most prominent sin. And it may be, may sound odd, I suppose, 
Um, but my thought was that, you know, as America, you know, especially because we're the richest nation in the world, um, like it might be odd because we are the richest nation in the world that we're so envious, but I think it's all, it's because we're so rich, um, that we're so given to envy because like, we're just so used to getting what we want when we want, whether we can really even afford it or not, Mm -hmm. that when we actually see someone with something that we want, but don't have, it's like, we almost feel entitled to have it for ourselves. Well, that's where the prosperity gospel comes in. Right. I think it ties in perfectly (laughs) with this idea of envy. And I think envy is rampant in this nation. And I think that envy is part, probably a large part of why we're such a vengeful, such a hateful, such a forgive forgiveness-less, if that's a real word, um, nation currently. You know, I think because we have so much envy in our heart, and I think, you know, riches and prosperity to the level that America has them, in many respects, is a burden, you know, and I think we see that burden that's been sort of placed on everybody's back here, and envy's crushing us. So uh, Mark Jones, he opens this chapter here, Uh, saying, envy is the daughter of pride. Envy as a sin gives no satisfaction due to the pain it experiences at the good fortune of others. Um, You know, and I think that's very well said. You know, envy, of course, never gives us any satisfaction. I know exactly what they mean there. So if you're just focused on what other people have... And then you kind of feel like they're, because you get it. It's like you, people desire to be envied. Oh, yeah. And we can't stand the thought of someone else knowing um, that I envy them. We don't want them to know. Yeah, the person wants to be envied, but I can't let you know I envy you even though I do, because you want me to. Yeah. Like, it's very, yeah, it's very uh, insidious there. And Like, people want to seem, they want to portray that they're content when they're not. Yeah. And, I mean, it causes you, in a sense, to disobey commands, right? You know, we're told we're supposed to, I might get the wording wrong, but, you know, rejoice with those who are rejoicing, weep with those who are weeping. But you can't rejoice with someone when they're rejoicing because of envy, right? Even if you might say you are, envy causes you to be a liar, which is again the sin. You're like, like the people oh, I'm that so always... happy for you, and you got married to that super rich and successful guy, and I'm in poverty. I'm super pumped for you. No, you're not. You're lying, right? And you're envious of them, and it probably is going to cause you know a seed of resentfulness in you, and all these sorts of and things. And just so. dissatisfaction in life it just makes me think of the people that are always like the one uppers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't have sure a conversation sign. with a one upper, but. <laughs> Um, but this is exactly true, right? You know, envy, covetousness. I mean, just like any sin, right? You think it's going to satisfy you. Um, but just like giving into any sin at the end of the day, it's ultimately going to leave you um, empty. You're going to be remorseful. You're going to be shamed, just like you are when you give into any sin. And envy is no different. Yeah, um, I don't like the way it feels because I've been there. And I know how stupid it is to be envious Because it does, it like, especially because you know you're going to be around the person you envy, and that's what bothers you. Like you just, if they're in your life, it's more of like a burden. You're like, why am I this way? Why can't I shake it? Can I just 
be happy and not think about what I don't have that they do have? Why does it bother me so much? Yeah. I've dealt with that. And I'm like, what? It's tormenting my mind. It really does. And that's why I think this verse that Jones references here is, I mean, obviously it's the word of God and it's perfect and truthful, um, but such a good, he references Proverbs 14.30. In Proverbs 14.30 here, um, it says, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And that is absolutely mm-hmm. a perfect verse. And it's so true. Um, and again, just yeah. like all sin, right? But like you mentioned, like envy, it just gnaws at you. It just eats your bones away. It rots your bones because you can't shake it. And, you know, again, it just causes you, it's like a poison. It just, you know, eats mm-hmm. you up inside. It ruins relationships. It causes, you know, because it brings dissatisfaction in everything, right? You see your friend who marries the rich, successful guy. Mm-hmm. And you become envious and then you become resentful that your spouse isn't rich and successful or your kids aren't, you know, and it's like, even if you don't want to, it just eats at you and it's just, boy, it just Like I can be envious. I notice that after reading this chapter, I'm like, wow, I really deal with it more than I even recognize. Just there's so many things and I don't see it as envy, but it's like, thank you, God, for revealing it to me so I can pray about it. That's what I want. I want that peace and contentment in life and knowing that where I am in life is all part of God's plan for me. So the things I want to pray for, I don't want to pray, God, help me be more successful. God, help me. It's like, God, help me to first not envy others. And because if I'm envying, I'm going to pray for what they have. And that's not what God wants. I'm praying amiss so I can feel better about myself. Um. Yeah. Um, No, it is definitely rottenness. And Jones goes on in here and he says, many sins are visible by their act. He references murder. But envy allows us to smile at our neighbor, say, nice SUV you have there, but inwardly hate him for his car, for his house, his wife, his children, job, wealth, athletic ability, or whatever. And then he goes on to say, it may well be that Satan was envious of Adam and Eve before they sinned. They had what he lost, and in his pride, he sought to take away from them what he did not possess. Um, and then he goes on just a little bit further, and he says, instead of joy and thanksgiving, envy brings distress over someone else's blessings in life. Mm. And to me, this is the largely sinful aspect of envy, because it downplays the blessings that God's given you Yeah. While somehow uplifting other people's blessings is better, right? So in one sense, you may have a good job um, that allows you to provide for your family and do all this sort of stuff. But all you can think about is like, maybe your, you know, your brother or your cousins, you know, even better job that provides even Mm -hmm. better than yours. So you're not even thankful for the job you have anymore, because you're envious of somebody else's job. Because we don't want others to we just don't want other people to be able to receive glory and boast because it makes us look bad. Like, oh, they have that because this, because of the things that they could boast about, you know. But what we're thinking is that that what they have isn't from God, it's from them. Because even our own salvation, we can't boast in it. 
We can't boast about any good thing. It all comes from God. So it's really taking away the glory from God um, that we should be acknowledging that God is the one who blessed them and praise God for it. Because uh, we can't boast about the good things we have. So why do we think that they get to boast and then it makes us envious of them? Like we don't want them to to glory. We don't want other people to um, praise them because we want the praise. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, we do want the praise. And the sad thing about envy is like, it always, for some reason, whenever we compare ourselves, we always assume that the other person's thing is better than what our thing is. Mm -hmm. Their thing is somehow always superior, which again, I mean, that's a lie from the devil. And, you know, so you may have a good wife, uh, but their wife is somehow better, right? And this is where adultery leads to and stuff like that. If I only had that wife, then I'd be truly happy. You know, sure, my job's really good, but uh, I mean, how many people, especially young kids do this and stuff, right? Oh, man, Jeff Bezos, it'd be so cool to be Jeff Bezos and the richest man in the world. And when you try to explain to him, like, you really think it'd be cool, you know, to work 23 hours a day, in you know, some stuffy corporate environment and stuff like that. Like, sure, it's I mean, not downplaying what Jeff Bezos did. But you're like, is that your personality? Because that may not actually be something you enjoy at all. You may enjoy being a rec center, uh, you know, worker and setting up Mm -hmm. youth sports, because that's what you love, right? but it's not going to pay you like Jeff Bezos. But again, you're envious and somehow being, you know, Elon Musk, that would be cool. And you're like, yeah, you think being sued every single day of your life by, you know, grifters and con men, you know, whatever. But like everything we see, we just assume is superior to ours. And Mm -hmm. um, we've definitely got to learn to be grateful for what we have. Um, (laughs) And then once you are grateful, right, that'll help you be loving and kind to those who have even more than you. Um, anyways, right? Because you're grateful for the gift God gave you, like you, Nikki was saying, because you understand God gives to to both of them. It's both from God. So we can't complain that God gave them more different than us because he mm-hmm. gave us what we needed um, and what he wanted us to have. So mm-hmm. um, I think those are good points brought up here. Were you going to bring up this part, whom we envy? I wasn't going oh, to, unless there's a point specifically really you want I know, but the show's running long. So if there's uh, points you want to bring up, bring them up. I just wasn't going to. Yeah. Um, he just says, like, we do not immediately like people who are similar to us. Like, we really compare ourselves with people who are, like, you know, I'm a mom with four kids, homeschool. So I'm going to compare myself more to people who are similar to me. And if they're slightly better at something that I also do, it causes envy. But they go on in here and say, like, like, I'm not going to envy Elon Musk, obviously. Like, someone who's not like me, I can't compare myself to them. Nobody's going to compare me to them. That's stupid. But it's always going to be someone who you have things in common with. Um, I just thought that was good because that's helpful in recognizing uh, envy in your life. Why, why do I feel this way? This person is similar to me. Um, you don't want like for women, oh, that girl looks like me, but she's slightly prettier in this respect, you know, <laughs> you're going to envy them like, oh, she just beats me by one point. <laughs> no, I mean, that does make yeah. sense that you would be more most envious of people that are most like you, um, which again, should be a blessing. And those should be some of your closest friends and all that. But again, because we don't like people that are similar to us, 
it can, you know, yeah. somehow kill what would otherwise be great relationships. Right. And stuff it's just like a that. competitiveness, really. Um, yeah. That's all it is. You want to be a little bit better than someone else. And it's good to bring up that point that I, you know, I wasn't going to mention. There's obviously, as with all of these chapters, much more in this chapter that we could discuss, um, especially in regards to envy. Certainly much more you could discuss if you just, you know, have to end this show at some point. Uh, so I just, I sort of overlooked that and went to Mark Jones's solutions to envy and um, mm. what can we do about it? And he says, the first thing is that we can ask God for true happiness. Yeah. And the he, treasures of heaven that don't, you know, <laughs> yeah, that lasts forever. So the verse that he referenced here was Psalm chapter four. Oh, let me see if I can pull it up really quick. Psalm chapter four, verse uh, six and seven. Psalm chapter four, verse six and seven. And it says, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when the grain and the new wine abound. Um, so praying to God for true happiness is something we can do. And secondly, he says, we can ask God for true love toward not only God, but also our neighbor. Uh, and this may seem simplistic, pray that you would love others. Um, but I think if you ask anybody who really prays, who's like a real prayer, <laughs> if that's a word, it's very difficult to be hateful or spiteful towards someone that you're actively praying for. You know, so I would say if you have envy in your heart towards someone, make up your mind today that you're going to take that person up in prayer and not just once, but consistent prayer you know, pray for God's blessings and his mercy on that person. And then watch the way that your heart um, sort of softens and changes over time. Um, because if you're praying that God blesses somebody and has mercy, then as they are blessed, you're not going to see that enviously, you're going to go, God answers prayers, right? Thank you, Lord. And I would say that this is an area that God's not going to leave you in. You know, this is a prayer that I think we could pray and expect God to move yes. and to answer on because he commands us to love our neighbor as ourself, right? Yeah. So he's going to give us the ability to do just that. Those are the ways God gives, not as the world gives. Right, because you can't even love your neighbor as yourself without the Holy Spirit working on your heart. So this is sort of a prayer God has to answer for you anyways. So if you pray it, he will answer it. Yeah, and there's so many people that are like, oh, it's selfish to pray for yourself. You're supposed to just pray for other people. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people say that. I only pray for praying for yourself is just selfish. That's self-focused. But no, you confess things before God and you ask for his help in spiritual things and that that battle, you know, there's a good book by Joyce Meyer, I say battlefield of the mind, um, of the heart. Um well yeah. that's silly, right? I mean, to say that you don't pray for yourself is because it's selfish is like who's more important than yourself, you know, before God, like, it's just, that's a nonsense. Pray for yourself, pray for yeah. others, but pray for yourself as well. Um, yeah, for sure. But, um, I'll just leave here, um, with these last two thoughts from Jones on the dangers of envy, um, because it is dangerous. And he says, first envy is aimed ultimately at the throne of God. And the envious person can never be happy while God reigns. Um, because ultimately, if you realize blessings come from God, then you're essentially angry with God 
Yeah. That he did not choose to bless you in the same way. So your envy is ultimately aimed at God. And then he says, secondly, in envy, we hate God's wisdom, his goodness, and mercy for the simple reason that we do not enjoy how we feel regarding others, which is a really stupid reason to hate God and his goodness and his mercy and wisdom, because we simply can't get over the way we feel about somebody else. Um, And you were happy until you saw what someone else had, like you're perfectly content. Yeah, you're like, man, I love this, you know. Ford Explorer, what a blessing this vehicle is. And it gets, and then you look and someone has a Range Rover and you're like, this stupid Ford Explorer. You're like, weren't you just happy with your car? Not that car though. You're like, all right, well, whatever. Um, We're so unstable. Yeah. In our emotions. Oh my gosh. (laughs) A great chapter. Envy, I think it's something we all deal with from time to time. Can't avoid it, but we do need to lift it up in prayer. So, yeah. Do you have any other final thoughts here on envy before we roll into our sermon recommendation or Sarah Young prosperity? Yeah, I think it ties in perfectly with the prosperity gospel because <laughs> with envy, like that is kind of like the foundation of the prosperity gospel. Um, because we're never satisfied, uh, and we're never going to be satisfied. We're going to demand more and more. Try to speak things into existence more and more, thinking we're our own God, we can make it happen. Um, instead of just, there's no contentment in the prosperity gospel. Um, you can't demand and speak contentment. You have to come to an understanding of your own sinfulness and confess it before God, like we're told to, and to pray for those spiritual things, peace, joy, um, and the Holy Spirit, um, Giving, just be having a thankful heart before God. There's no thankfulness in the prosperity gospel. There's only a continuous looking into the future. What can I speak into existence? How can I improve? And the thing with envy is no contentment. We're always going to be looking to the next thing, uh, comparing ourselves to someone else. And trials are never going to stop. There's always going to be someone else who has something that you don't have, but you got your prosperity gospel. Your name it and claim it in your back pocket. That it's just a cycle. It's never going to end. Um, so step away. Get away from the prosperity gospel mindset. Um, recognize it stems from envy of your neighbor. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, so we'll end here with our sermon recommendations, and I have two of them this week to kind of cover both of the main areas that we talked about, the Bible topic and sort of the prosperity, um, new age mystic, uh, mysticism type stuff. So the first one here is from Alistair Begg, and he's speaking on jealousy, which is mm. kind of a, another fancy term for envy there. Yeah. So Alistair Begg, we're big fans of. This video is looks terrible, but I bet you the message is good. Uh, and then our second sermon recommendation here is from Justin Peters speaking on the deadly dangers of trusting personal experience over biblical authority, which, yeah. you know, the charismatic is very heavily into experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so this should be a good message here from Justin Peters. So that is uh, all we got here. We will be back um, next Saturday. I'm not sure what we're going to discuss. Hopefully get into chapter 13 of our Bible topic. Um, but we'll see what the world throws at us. So hope you guys have a great week. Go Lions! Go Lions!